Oh, so Rob, if what you say is correct, the entire social fabric of the entire world will unwind and it'll be Mad Max all over again. Do you have a car with spikes on it? Well, I don't. Greg, seriously, you're going to argue like that? Well, okay, what about Mrs. Johnson of Topeka, Kansas? If she were to do what you're proposing, she'd become homeless and destitute, and so would all 350 million North Americans. Anecdotal evidence isn't evidence. Oh, okay. Okay, so basically, basically, let's just boil this down. There's two alternatives here, only two. Uh, either you're right and we're all doomed, or I'm right. Uh-huh, okay. I think there's a little bit more than two, Greg. Well, we can't possibly know the, know the correct answer, really, so we should probably just go with the status quo. And it's worked all this time. Uh, also, it just happens to be the position I hold. Oh, if you want to live in the dark ages, fine, dandy. Oh, well, 52% of people uh, agree with me, so too bad, so sad. Um, 155 million people can't be wrong, Well, 52% right? of people are morons. You ready to give up? Have I convinced you, Rob? Not at all. You need to uh, practice your arguing a little bit better. Oh, well, then maybe I should listen to LUEE's next episode, The Science of Arguing. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism that is produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics and the Humanists, Atheists, and Agnostics of Manitoba. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes, references, and relevant links for all episodes can be found at lueepodcast.wordpress.com or at winnipegskeptics.com slash blog. You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Tonight on the show, the science of arguing. Tonight I have with me a special guest, Saren Gordon. Hello. A usual host, Rochelle McCullough. Hello, Greg. And myself, of course, Greg Christensen. So tonight we're going to be talking about, I guess, persuasion and argument. The idea was originally given to us by our guest, Saren. Do you want to go into a bit of a background about what your arguing experience is? Sure. I grew up in a family that loved to argue, still loves to argue. And that was kind of our family bonding thing is we would get around the table and discuss issues. And I thought we were debating it. And I didn't realize that there was no actual debate happening until I began to have different ideas than the ideas that some of people in my family always held and would always bring up. Then I realized that there really was no debate. This wasn't a place to learn about different sides and change your mind and see who had the best argument. This was a place where if you were the loudest and could speak the longest, you won. And this was a place where people were really just more affirming their own identities and the fact that they all belonged in the group and they were all smarter than everyone else and they had the right idea and everyone else who wasn't in the group was just wrong. And I wasn't really aware of this growing up. I met it when I began to have different ideas that this was not actually open for discussion. This was not a debate. Unfortunately, I learned those so-called debating tactics. And when I brought them to my friends and my classmates, I realized that they also didn't work there and I wasn't changing minds, but was almost making enemies and making tribal groups. 
And I thought this was maybe just me, maybe my problem. And as I began to do research into cults and coming out of cults, since technically the church I grew up in is a cult, I began to learn about brainwashing techniques, indoctrination techniques, and how people use persuasion to get people to solidify their ideas and stop thinking. And that's kind of when I realized that my argument techniques were not conducive to helping people learn and change their minds and grow, but were actually solidifying people's positions and more deeply entrenching them, whether they are based in fact or not. I've had somewhat similar experiences. I mean, I've, in the last, um, I think it was two episodes ago, Atheist Myths. I've, I've been having a lot of words with that, or a lot of problems with that <laughs> word. <laughs> yes. Oh, SpaghettiOs. Um, and I mean, when I, when I do engage in debate, I mean, I'm rigorously confined to facts. I've no time for climate change, denial, anti-vaxxers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I would consider my, my arguments very direct, strong to the point yet. I'm not entirely sure I've ever really changed a mind. I think I might have swayed someone from like, if I arbitrarily assign us a, you know, two polarities on the scale, one, the person who disagrees with me, zero, I'm a 10, uh, just that's total arbitrary numbers. I, I you know, uh, <laughs> a fully engaged argument and which happens to be my side, then I guess I'll just accept that. I guess I just, <laughs> just have to live with that. You know, <laughs> I might have, I might've moved someone from like a zero to a five, to maybe like maybe ambivalence or not quite caring as much. I think I deconverted one Catholic and kind of made him not quite care so much about the Pope, but still very much a supernaturalist. And I've actually convinced people to, to throw out all of science in my family because of climate change, you know, denial. Yeah. So I'm not entirely successful with arguing. And a lot of people describe me as being excessively combative and, if I may say, an asshole when I argue. Although I honestly don't see it like that. I think I, I, think I am concerned about truth and concerned about what is quantifiably right. Then again, like 80% of drivers believe they're above average. So, I mean, the definition of average tells you that that is wrong. <laughs> so maybe, maybe I'm not as intellectually pure and sound as I'd like to think I am. I don't know. But also you're bringing up the question of values. I think all of us here really value truth and what's right. And most people do, but for a lot of people, it's not their highest value and they're willing to let that one slide. If it means that they can stay friends with the people that they want to stay friends with. Mm-hmm. Or, or they, what they perceive as happiness is entrenched in a belief whether or not it's true, and they acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. Possibly. Or some people see you know, the glory of Jesus Christ as the truth. And I mean, truth in quotes has a completely different meaning to... Like their truth is... Comp- like we just simply cannot agree on the basic facts. Right, facts. Of, and not everybody does. That was one of the surprising things for me was reading um, some articles that talked about how in uh, debates, sometimes bringing up facts 
instead of changing people's minds and letting them see that they were wrong, actually causes them to take a step backwards and entrench their views even harder, like what you mentioned about getting people to throw out science. When you presented them with the facts about global warming, not only did they just not agree with it, but they went even farther and said, now I have to disagree with all of science mm -hmm. because I can't accept this fact. It, it just baffled my mind. Um, the particular instance was uh, was an article in the Western Producer. The Western Producer, for those of you who are not from rural prairies, um, is a farming newspaper that goes out to Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Oh, probably, and I think yeah. Alberta, southern would, Alberta as well. Yeah. Um, and it's... Yeah, my uncle gets it here. Yeah, so okay, so it's mostly focused on the life and times of being a farmer in the prairies. Mm -hmm. So, so it, that's certainly the, the target audience, so you can imagine it's a quite conservative group. And I'm not sure what links, you know, conservatives and climate change denial. You would think that if there is one group of people that are on the front lines of climate change, it would be people that are completely and utterly dependent on the weather, and that is farmers. But in any event, um, a relative of mine comes up and is like, hey, you should really check out this article in the Western Producer uh, about climate change. And it was, uh, it was by a person the name of Tim Ball. Uh, and in, in this article, he was claiming that he was a climate scientist. Truth be known, and we can link to this in the show notes, but I don't want to get into it too much on climate change, but Tim Ball is a credential fudger, climate change denialist. So what he, what he actually is, is a geography teacher, not, not geology, not climatology, not climate science. He is a geography teacher. Um, now that doesn't exclude him from having opinions on climate change, but when they directly contradict climate scientists who are the experts in that field, sorry, that's not the way things work in any event. So my rebuttal to this, I'm like, Oh, like I sensed an easy win blood in the water. Mm -mm -mm, yum. Um, the Jaws music is playing in the that, background. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, and I came, like, I was sweet as pie. Sweet as, sorry, that's just my little southern bell. I don't know. Work in progress. Anyways, so what What better to, to just disarm someone's faulty argument with, with some facts and do it nicely and be like, but here, I can show you something. My ace in the hole, my gut punch was the Bill Nye video that circulated the, the internet a while back, where he just basically took two identical jars, pumped one full of carbon dioxide, two identical heat lamps over top, and you can quantifiably observe the, the air or atmosphere, you know, to use in, in the air quotes, if you will, yeah. of the jar filled with more CO2, its temperature rose much faster. And you could, you could observe this. This was so simple, so simple to, it's, it's something, it didn't require faith. It did, this is a science school or a science fair experiment that a grade six, seven could, could pull off without a problem. And I'm like completely disarming. Plus Bill Nye has a bow tie. How can you argue with anyone who's wearing a bow tie? It's so awesome. Bow ties are cool. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So the end result of that was, uh, was my opponents throwing out all of science like presumably if one of them were to get sick they would still go and see a doctor 
but for the purposes of uh, frustrating me on this night and this particular thing, well, all of science is corrupt. And yeah, you you made the classical mistake that you know showing someone the facts will change in their minds, and that people are rational, and logical. Mm-hmm. But it's people don't work that way, especially people with certain personality types tend to not trust their own reasoning as much as they trust others. Like there's lots of different ways of categorizing people, but one of the ways is authoritarians or hierarchical people who tend, there tend to be more of them in the conservative side. And if you show them the facts without being on their side or one of their leaders, then it often has the effect of, I forget the word. Entrenching? Entrenching. There's another word too, uh, rebound effect mm. that they've found in, in different studies. When you show people of various opinions, conservatives and liberals, a study that contradicts what they believe, um, the particular study was from the States and it was talking about whether President Bush had arms and there was another one on the liberal side that I forget. That one was the uh, vaccination. Vaccination. One that they were discussing, yes. Right. So the conservative people had the rebound effect where before they were shown the President Bush saying that there were no arms in Iraq, they did think there were. But after they were shown it, then they were even more certain that there actually were. And this was a giant conspiracy. But the the liberal people uh, didn't have the rebound effect. They didn't change their minds, but they didn't go farther in the other direction. So the rebound effect is basically doubling down on crazy. Oh, you think this this you think my one opinion here is is radical and and unreasonable? Well, then I'm just going to move farther away from your position. Is that kind of what you're talking about or? Yeah, what was the other example about the um well the the wake sect? if you look at the the Wakefield uh, following, let's call it of uh, the anti-vaccination movement. I'm sure everyone who's listening is uh, familiar with the uh, the Wakefield scandal. He, he was the one who published a very poorly designed study saying that the MMR vaccine was associated with autism. Brian Deere uh, published an excellent takedown of that in the BMJ. He ended up losing his license. It was attracted from the Lancet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And despite all this, he has ardent vocal supporters. Um, he, despite having lost his medical license, uh, despite having incredible evidence of fraud and basically just being generally a bad scientist in person, um, <laughs> he, he still tours for these autism conferences that are anti-vaccination and people pay him to come. Despite all of the evidence that he was not doing what he said he was doing and he was claiming things that the study did not show. People still believe him strongly and in some cases more strongly than ever because they feel now that there is a conspiracy against the great truth which he has found despite <laughs> these literally countrywide epidemiological studies demonstrating that no, vaccines do not cause autism. This is actually one thing that the conservatives are way smarter than the liberals I'm not meaning parties, I mean personalities or brain types or a different categorization, even though there's significant overlap between the parties, that the conservatives are way smarter than the liberals at in convincing people to get them to change sides is that instead of presenting the facts like your typical liberal person would and expect people to see that obviously a climate change scientist would have 
more authority to speak on the topic than a geology teacher is that they work on the us them thing and they get people to feel part of a tribe and if they can feel part of a persecuted tribe they're going to hold on even tighter Mm -hmm. and this is how they get people on their side and to support their side yeah and it's amazing how that seems to have evolved I, I say evolved in the casual sense numerous times for numerous different groups as a way of spreading their beliefs you, you've already mentioned uh, cults. That's one of the ways that they solidify is using the us versus them mentality. Mm-hmm. And certainly most religions have something in them where, oh, and we're the persecuted minority, and if someone's disagreeing with you, that means you're doing it right. And basically cutting off all those roots where dissent means you're right, mm-hmm. uh, which... Yeah, if they can get you to identify with a group, feel part of a special group that's being attacked by other people, then you're probably going to go along with their other ideas. Mm-hmm. That was one of the um, fascinating things I found in Mark Gallanter's book on cults, called Cults. Very creative title. <laughs> <laughs> was uh, some of the indoctrination techniques that the Moonies, they would bring in recruits and they would be a little bit unsure about which side they were on. He actually had them do quizzes to see how strongly they believed the new doctrines that they were being shown. But then these people, these new recruits, while they still really weren't sure what they thought, were then sent out on the streets and told to proselytize to people on the streets. And they did not take so well to being proselytized to. So people on the streets would argue back. And these new recruits would find themselves in the position of having to defend these things they weren't sure about. And during that process they solidified their beliefs. That's actually really brilliant. I mean, in a horrifying, manipulative way, but like, (laughs) you know, if you really want to get someone to strongly believe something, yeah, you get them to argue it first, and then they come to rationalize that argument. We think that we can rationalize first, but we, we really often don't. So if you can get the emotional connection there we will rationalize it afterwards. (laughs) And they found that smart people tend to do this well, very well. So (laughs) how are we defining smart people? One study was based on whether people had university training. Oh, oh, okay. So we're talking about education level, not intelligence. Not intelligence, but how people, how smart people perceive themselves to be is definitely a factor in this. They were, they divided people into categories called hierarchical individualists or communitarian egalitarianists. So basically in the hierarchical individualists were groups that were right-wing politics. So they have strong individualism, like libertarianism kind of traits. Yes. And they also believe in a hierarchy, top-down kind of decision. And then the other ones feel that everybody is on kind of the same level, but different, egalitarian and communalist. Communalist values. Okay, so you value the community. Sorry, I just Mm. need to clarify that. I just spent an afternoon playing Dungeons and Dragons. So we're talking uh, law versus chaos <laughs> and perhaps good versus evil. However, you can have lawful good, lawful evil. You, you know, you can mix and match the two any way you wish. 
throw in some neutrality and you get your nine alignments. So the one in the center is true neutral. True neutral. No respect for hierarchy or good or bad. They kind of just meander their way through. Probably those, so, are the, those are the people you would determine as kind of apathetheists, I guess. Apatheists, <laughs> you know. That would they probably wouldn't, be like a, but they would probably be very individualistic then, mm-hmm, right? Yeah, Because they don't exactly. really care about the rule of the law, so. Possibly, yeah. Hmm, interesting, okay. I don't know, I certainly think I fit into the latter of the categories. Now, that kind of provoked uh, an interesting question. So I'll share another personal story. A long time ago, I did a, an episode on hate crime. So this all came about over a very stirring breakfast conversation uh, with a libertarian buddy of mine. And he's like, I don't think there should be hate laws at all. And I'm like, you monster! (laughs) You know, so, you know, immediately my my reaction was visceral and immediate, right? Yeah. But I went through like a a whole huge searching process. Uh, It took me like eight or nine months to write this episode and to pour through legislation because it's, well, quite frankly, it's boring. Um, sorry, lawyers. Sorry. Sorry, yeah. politicians. I couldn't, you know, I could only do it for like, you know, a couple of hours at a time. And I'm like, ooh. <laughs> and uh, anyways, so my leanings kind of waxed and waned for a brief while, you know, because I do value individual autonomy, personal freedom, and, and those those concepts which are very important to libertarians. So I would honestly consider myself like 75% democratic socialist, 25% libertarian. It's such a, it's such a, it's like. There's some cognitive dissonance going on. Oil and water, (laughs) oil and water. Like, I mean, if you pin me down to something, I'm going to say, well, I'm going to side with evidence and I'm going to say, the most successful societies are ones that have a strong government that provide a social safety net so that everybody has enough. But at the same time, I do value personal freedom and I don't necessarily think that government should overreach. An extreme, excessively ridiculous example, say muzzling of scientists, if there was some sort of government that would do such a heinous thing, you know, or or the NSA going absolutely ape shit on spying. Apparently they're spying on like most citizens on the planet. So another thing would be that secular charter, which we discussed in the last episode, mm-hmm. where it's not quite... So yes, I can agree that government needs to be... Needs to set a floor, right? So that it's like not everything should be free market. But at the same time, government should not be running around telling you that you can't wear your turban, your hijab or your cross or whatever whatever it is. I'm thinking now, so that's why I would consider myself open to new ideas and open to the facts and so forth. In this particular case, when I read the hate crime legislation, and if you want, you can go in the archives, and I went into tons of detail during that episode um, with Jeff Olson and Ali Ashtari, and uh, I forget who else was with us, possibly Rob. To sum it up, hate crime legislation is not government overreaching. It it does kind of set that floor. Um, so and it also prevents the Westboro Baptist Church from entering Canada. Yay! Yay! <laughs> the libertarian pro, uh, proposition Texas. is that you know 
nobody should have, well, actually, I, I kind of forget because I've, I've ultimately dismissed that particular part of libertarianism because they were, like, the standard objection to that is, um, is it's muzzling, muzzling people. Everybody should have the right to say what it wants. But you can't. You can say hateful and vile things, and it's, it's not hate speech. What hate speech is, is vile and hateful things that incite others to endanger other people. And yes, that is a clear violation. That that's a crime. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyways, that that was a long episode and a long another topic. But back to the science of arguing is that. See, I I considered myself, you know, quite the, you know, ivory tower skeptic. If that's <laughs> the right, you know, I'm like, look at me. I am changing my opinion based on facts and evidence. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! I am doing this correctly. Yes. You know, but could that be that I have a subspecialization in libertarianism? Like I'm dual classed. Am I like a dual class rogue fighter, you know, <laughs> to bring back the D and D? I don't know how many nerds there are. Could that be because my primary focus, I was just really bouncing between two things that I already accepted. Do you think, do you think maybe that's what was going on? It could be, but it could also be that you were weighing the facts. It is a long, hard process. Oh, and it took a long time. Yeah. Like, but when we're talking about arguing, so that's something that happens in the heat of the moment. It's, it can cause people to go back and think about it and deliberate it about it, which sounds, sounds like what you did. What I was referring to about intelligent people or people who believe they are more intelligent than others. Oh. <laughs> I was just going to okay. say. Okay, so there was a 2008 Pew survey that was talking about climate, climate change with regard to Republicans. Sorry, Ooh. it's for the states, but I'm sure the numbers of Canada are similar. Oh, I, I can feel myself getting mad already. <laughs> oh, is there a comment section on whatever this website is? And... Yeah. 19% of college-educated Republicans agreed that climate change was real and was caused by humans. 19%. 19%. So there's like 80% that are like... Of college educated. However, 33% of non-college educated working class Republicans agreed that climate change was real and was caused by humans. So you're saying that there's an inverse correlation between education and belief in climate change in this group of American Republicans. That's what the survey (laughs) indicates. I would think that because people who have gone to college tend to believe that their brains are more capable than people who have not had the opportunities to go to college, that's possibly something that could be... Well, and also, I guess it depends on what kind of college. I mean, if there's a super right-wing colleges and the uh, private colleges in the U.S., like Bob Jones University and things, which explicitly teach that climate change isn't a thing. True, true. That's Um, true. I've seen this somewhere else, too, and I just can't remember where it was, but that people who are, you know, very intelligent can use their intelligence instead of deliberating the options and going back and forth but to create arguments as to why their side is right. And mm-hmm. I see a lot in uh, creation debates or Christian debates that these are very intelligent people, obviously intelligent people, spewing off ridiculous things. 
And it makes me sad because, Ray Comfort aside, most of them are very smart. (laughs) I feel like they're wasting their brain power. And it's like I've noticed in my my own family. Well, is this sort of a subset of the Dunning-Kruger effect then? Um, Dunning-Kruger is basically the more you know, the the less you know you know. Or, yeah, the more you... Crap, help me, Greg. Help. The more you know, the less you... Think you know. And the less you know, the more you think you know. So if you've just started started picking up um, origami and you've gone through your intro to origami art book and you, then you go look at other people's origamis, you're like, oh, man, I can do way better than that, and I can, you can critique right. them. And then if you become a true expert in the art of origami, then you'll go, oh, well, my stuff isn't that perfect because I can see all the flaws in it because I know what the flaws are. Whereas um, when you're not as educated in a topic, you basically don't know what you don't know. So is there a reason why arguing on the Internet is basically the worst thing ever? Like is there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there there are studies that show when you read the comment sections, and if the comment sections are polarized, that you tend to become more polarized yourself, which is the opposite deliberating and yeah. Well, at some point, and I mean, I I can certainly you know self analyze and see that in myself. After doing a two part episode on climate change and pouring over that science. I'm done debating. And when I look at a comment that's stupid on the internet, uh, I may, if I may have time or may not have time, I might leave a response. But yeah, I'm polarized. I side with the science. Yeah, I I find it's personally sort of a patience thing. Like when the, the arguments that you're getting from the other side of this polarized issue are novel, then you can actually kind of intellectually work with them but when you become more reversed in a topic it's just sort of like oh good I have to hear this argument again and yeah I certainly find it's entrenching because then as soon as that argument comes up then you're already got your response in your head instead of actually having to listen and think about that person's argument I was recently in a discussion with someone about whether Plan B is an abortifacient or not. No, It no. prevents ovulation. That's how it works. <laughs> well, yeah, and it, it also, um, Plan B will induce, uh, Plan B is a, basically, if you take it with when your birth control fails or you fail to use your contraceptives. Or your condom breaks. Or your condom breaks, or whatever the case is. Um, and um, it will also um, induce a period which is the thinning of the lining of the uterus. So that's not that's not creating an abortion because if there is an implanted yeah. implanted egg implanted fetus, the a period is not going to get rid of anything that's already implanted. Um, it will just prevent something from implanting if it hasn't implanted yet. Yes. And I thought that by presenting all these different topics to this person, I hadn't heard her arguments before. Anyways, I thought I would engage this person in a debate and show why her so-called facts were wrong. And in the end, she ended up not only refusing to listen, it just ended very badly and I got accused of bullying for disagreeing with her. Anyways, what I, what I began to realize was that I was causing her to 
feel afraid. And when people are afraid or angry, part of their brain shuts down that, you know, leads to logical processing and rationalization and those higher processes. Mm -hmm. And it goes to the more instinctual fight or flight. And I had tripped that and she was definitely in a fight or flight mode. And I think that I did a lot more harm than good Mm -hmm. in that case. So I was wanting to learn how to, to find better techniques of bringing facts into conversations that wouldn't lead to people becoming angry and shutting down their brains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially in abortion debate mm-hmm. debacle that it is. <laughs> um, yeah, certainly it's highly emotional. And um, if anything, the pro-life is excellent at making an emotional argument. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly teaching kids that it's it means killing babies. You know, really, that's that's a purely emotional argument designed to elicit yeah. Um, you know, uh, instinctual repulsion rather than actually addressing anything about the, the topic at all. Yeah. And for those of us who really value facts and look down on emotional manipulation, we find those tactics abhorrent. <laughs> so we don't use them. So we lose, even though our arguments are better. <laughs> Mm -hmm. see and now i'm going like but we're kind of all just sitting around confirming our own opinions now (laughs) so we're kind of actually entrenching our own opinions about how no we're not (laughs) 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 well that's sort of like the the irony of it right is that as we're sitting here talking about how argument changes things we're all agreeing about it we're also not really arguing like we haven't well tripped up any deep emotional issues right now or identity politics. That's true. We're having a conversation and because right. we haven't tripped up any things that we disagree on, I think we're engaging in a, a model discussion, perhaps. Okay. So since the 1990s, there's been this thing called functional MRI where they take um, pictures of the brain using um, a giant magnet, an MRI, um, and they measure the amount of uptake of sugar, which indicates how much activity is going on in that area of the brain. And so they've shown in these studies that decision-making happens before in the deep brain, before it happens in the frontal lobes where everything is processed and um, rationalized and you come up with your opinion. You, the, the decision has already been made before that process happens. And people use this as evidence that that means that we actually have our opinion before we think we've formed it. Which is unusual. What well, might explain, um, like when Rochelle, when we went to the Wycliffe Bible Translation School, I yeah. shared my story of how I could never believe in God. Like, I just couldn't do it. The indoctrination would not take. And, I mean, I I have a feeling, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I have a feeling that it's probably the makeup of my brain chemistry that makes me so obsessed and concerned about facts. And I'll, I'll even give myself a bit of, humbling and use that in quotes, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because I'm not, I'm not going to be reading, you know, Chicago style economics or whatever, you know, and, and being like, Oh my goodness, you know, 
trickle-down economics does work. Look at all these facts. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever find that, show it to me. <laughs> yeah, I would well, be very interested to see that, too. <laughs> what, just facts? or No, if you found that trickle-down economics actually works. Oh, that yeah. would be very interesting reading. No, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, well, there. I guess case in point, a plan that's been going on for thirty years and forms the entire basis of neoconservatism has been proven to not work time and time and time and time and time again. But Jimmy Carter is reviled as probably one of the worst presidents ever, when in reality, I believe they pretty much uh, like they increased the social safety net. Uh, around that time and pretty much solved the food bank issues. Food banks were almost not required. In any event, Nixon, um, not Nixon, Reagan comes in, guts the social the social network and, and begins this thing. And quantifiably, I, I could probably say that George Bush II is probably the worst president in American history, but yet they're all ragging on Jimmy Carter. There's, a, there's even a photo that... All of the live presidents, like when Barack Obama was elected in 08, they had Clinton, the two Bushes, Obama, the soon-to-be-inaugurated Obama, and Carter would have been the only other president that was alive. And there's a picture of even those those four, even though the Obama and Clinton are Democrats, the two Bushes are Republicans, they all shun Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was like separated from the group. Um, it's it, weird. I guess it gets back to that whole emotional idea, though, right? Like, if you people revile someone, whether it's justified or not, then by associating with them, then people will associate their feelings for that person to you. So it would make sense with Clinton, who now basically works off of his popularity, and Obama, who was trying to get reelected, presumably in the future, to go with the public opinion and appeal to the emotions that, yes, we are not like this person, whether or not they deserved it. I'm looking at the photo right now. Now, again, we'll put this in the show notes, but tell me if, if you see, if you see what, what I'm seeing here. You've got five men. I mean, am I imagining this? Am I? Am yeah, I, no, that they're, they're, you know, they've all kind you, of shoulder to shoulder, buddy, buddy. Yeah. And then there's a good gap between. Are we all just. You can, you can yeah. go see it for yourself. I, I could fit in between them. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, I yeah, don't know. And he's like trying to lean in even to the picture, like. Jimmy Carter is, and, yeah. and everyone's kind of just like... Yeah. I don't know. To conclude that thought, you have the Tea Party today, whose central premise is based on 30 years of something that has been observed to not work. Yeah. And they, f and it's so weird. They fight healthcare like crazy. I'm wondering if Tommy Douglas had the same kind of oh, see, fight on his hands. Probably he did. I but Tommy did. Douglas was a minister. He could appeal to people who follow authority, especially religious authority. So these people aren't going to listen to scientists or social workers because they don't have the right authority. They're not on the right tribe, but a minister of the gospel. And that is, in fact, how they find that a lot of these people in the, in the right wing authoritarian group do end up changing their minds about things. It's not from being shown the facts. It's having the proper authority or having the issue shown with the right values that changes their mind. So if a minister of the gospel, respected evangelical, let's say, minister comes up and talks, advocates for uh, pro-gay rights, then people will start changing their minds in this group. If scientists talk about 
how nuclear energy can help business and help uh, the environment. They're more likely to listen. It comes back to the tribalism thing. Who's it? Was it Jonathan Hadel or Heigl? I'm not pronouncing his name right. It was talking about how we have family values. There's the patriarch model and then there's the egalitarian family model. And we all as humans all have these, both of these in us, where one is the more authoritarian father has the rule of law and the wife is his helper and the children are obedient. And then there's the egalitarian, the parents work together, they're partners, and they don't tell the children what to do. They guide and nurture the children to their own potential. And what politics does is instead of convincing people that this policy is actually accurate, that Jimmy Carter's policies are good or bad, they just trip people's family models. And if they can get people scared, they have tripped the patriarchal family model where we look to protection. And if they can get people to cooperate and think highly of their neighbors, they've tripped the more egalitarian model. And that that changes people's minds more than pointing out the benefits. In regards to the authority figure, I mean, I believe that's what it took the Mormon church to stop being, well, as much racist. Uh, <laughs> as openly, blatantly racist? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was direct revelation exactly. about the exact same time as a major civil rights case was about to come down in the United States that would have blacklisted the Mormon church and stripped them of rights because they were a racist organization. So just in time for that laws, those laws and the civil rights movement to come in, they quickly caught up. You know, God was like, whoa, hey guys, whoa, better oh, fix that. It's a good thing God yeah, it's a good thing he right stepped in then, yeah. right then, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good thing God can change his mind. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, though. Like, I, I guess I'm entrenched in the idea that I am not entrenched in ideas, much like Greg. And uh, so the idea that I've made decisions about things which I think I'm thinking about rationally, although I fully acknowledge it's possible, I just... I'm incapable of seeing my own biases in that sense. Just because we make decisions based on an earlier predisposition doesn't mean that we're wrong. If you've done a lot of groundwork beforehand, analyzing your position and your values, the instinctual decisions you make are more likely to be accurate. Does that sound reasonable? (laughs) Or are you just rationalizing? Uh, like, I don't know. I mean, there's there's areas where I feel that I'm very well-versed and can have kind of an off-the-cuff but informed opinion on. And there's other things. You know, if someone all of a sudden says, I don't know, something about feminism, because that's that's very much a social justice position for me as opposed to a rational position. Um, if someone gave me evidence that because of feminism, babies are eaten. Like, well, what if I, what if I told you that radical feminists cause earthquakes? Oh, it's just their cleavage. Oh, oh, okay. Sorry, as long as we get that covered up, we're good. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, one of the things that I was recently confronted with was my opinions on polyamory, which I didn't even know existed. I've actually also had a similar experience, but go on. Okay. I, well, make that three. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no idea. It was a skeptic camp talk uh, a very long time ago that like, I sort of just lumped it all together with... Whatnot. Cheating? Adultery? 
Sort of. That's yeah. kind of what I thought it was. Yeah. So my first response was, that's just wrong. That has to be wrong. I will find all the ways that it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> However, I didn't stay there. And I've maybe learned that I've been wrong enough before, seeing as I was a militant missionary Christian. So I came to the conclusion that apparently polyamory works really well for people, and I have seen it. Some of my friends are polyamorous, and I really can't rationalize that it's bad for them because I see them happy. I, yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, it's a personal my, choice thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm just because I accept other people's polyamory doesn't mean I want to be polyamorous. Right. My desire is for a monogamous relationship. Period. Yeah. And so then I came to the conclusion that maybe it's like sexual orientation. Some people are naturally monogamous. Some people are naturally polyamorous. And some people kind of could go either way, depending on the circumstances and things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, my, I guess this kind of gets back into the, the whole emotional presentation. Um, I took an intro to women's studies class at University of Calgary. I'm going to say eons ago now. (laughs) And uh, one of the things they talked about was they lumped in polyamory with polygamy, which polygamy is um, having multiple wives as a patriarchal practice that does not involve consent on all the individuals involved. It's just like the husband's like, man, I need another wife. You're going to have another second wife who you can boss around now and you don't have any choice in the matter. Whereas polyamory is very all about consent, obviously. Um, but in any case, this, this was presented as the feminist position on polyamory, polygamy, is that it is bad and ignores consent and therefore is terrible. And I just kind of never thought about it and never challenged it and started saying these opinions to someone who happens to be polyamorous and basically made an ass of myself because I didn't bother to investigate for myself because it was I was already bought into the ideology and just went okay that sounds about right and just went with the emotional mm-hmm. and, and um yeah so <laughs> I, I definitely can see how that comes up because that was I was very, very wrong. And um, I feel really bad about it to this yeah. day that, that I held an opinion just because yeah, someone told really me. Yeah, but you didn't really act on the opinion, right? No, I didn't act on it, but I still... Um, well, I held the same opinions, right? Like yeah. I knew, I guess like, well, I have no idea what they were, but I knew uh, a couple that had an open marriage at one of my former workplaces. And, and I mean, I just lumped them all in with, you know, just people who weren't monogamous and I'm like, well, yeah, that's not my, it's not my bag of tricks, but do whatever makes you happy. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, at no point was I oh, you know, yeah. judging them and neither were you. So there's, there's really no reason to feel guilty yeah. about well, that. I mean, you can't research every single thing you come <laughs> across. We just don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. That's true. But I think getting into kind of the subtle ways that mm-hmm. that opinion can bias you. Um, for I'm, sure. I'm yeah. glad that, I've cleared that out because now I can at least be aware of my uh, my bias and work to correct it. So Yeah, and, and I've learned a few things from people who've called me on things like polyamory that I used to judge harshly without knowing what was going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the things that the people who've successfully persuaded me to reconsider my position have done 
is that they've made me feel safe. They didn't make me feel threatened. They didn't make me feel stupid or bad for having that opinion. And that's something that other studies show is that when people feel like their intelligence or their morality or their worth as a person is being contested in a debate, then they are not going to listen and they are going to hold on more tightly. Like gun control is one thing <laughs> that demonstrates this very well. If, if someone believes that they are a good person and they want to protect people and you show them how certain ideas about gun control are not helpful without making them feel validated or appreciated, they're going to feel like you're attacking their intelligence and they know that they would never want people to be hurt. So that just can't be true because they would have to lose their good opinion of themselves. So if you can really like to learn how to better bring up topics without putting people on the defensive and maybe just affirming them by saying, I know you're a very intelligent person. I know you really care. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that listening is such an important part of having a good debate as opposed to the kind of who can yell the loudest match that, that you described earlier. Certainly, I have got to the point where I just refuse to have a debate with someone, quote-unquote, um, unless it, they are legitimately willing to have a discussion with me. And it doesn't mean that I expect them to throw out their opinion. Um, that by no means do I want that. Um, but I, I want someone who is willing to listen to my points and respond to them, and I will do. I will give them the same respect. I think that's just mm -hmm. that's how you have an enjoyable discussion about a topic which is heated, yeah, <laughs> uh, as opposed to getting angry and destroying friendships, relationships. I think part of that you bring up is that you've taken the war analogy of argument and changed it into something else where you are learning and listening and respecting. And it's not about who wins or who loses. Are it's always about who wins or loses. <laughs> no, it isn't. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. Okay. Continue. <laughs> oh, now yes, you disarmed you me. <laughs> you I won. I also beat Rob in the pre-show preamble too. He just doesn't want to admit it. <laughs> I think one of the ways that arguing as a war distances people is that it it creates sides and us versus them, which helps black and white thinking. If you're wondering, I'm getting this from an interview as it happens from James Dawes, who wrote evil men about how nice regular guys could do the horrendous war crimes that were done in world war II Japan. N nice, nice regular in air quotes, not like, Oh no, no really nice, war. decent men. How these nice, decent everyday men could turn into people who did absolutely horrible things that I'm not going to mention. And well, I think that was observed on both the, in the European front and in Japan's invasion of mainland China. Yes. Well. Yes. Like people would do horrific things and then go home and be like, Hey honey, I'm home. Yeah. And he went and interviewed a lot of these people and he found that there was certain, there was a way of indoctrinating them into violence. And it, I think it has a lot to do with how we argue too. So one of the things that they did was they got people to do black and white thinking. And there's mm. studies done by Dr. Kathleen Taylor, who is a computational neuroscientist, um, about how if you can maneuver the prefrontal cortex in certain ways, you can trigger black and white thinking. And in an argument, 
I didn't read her book, so I'm not sure how you would manipulate it. But in an argument, if you can trigger this black and white thinking, you've already polarized and you've stopped the exchange of ideas. And then with the black and white thinking, it's really easy to dehumanize. I'm good. I'm on the right side. I'm... We're on God's side. We are. <laughs> you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. Right. And then they're dehumanized and then you don't listen to them. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so I guess the point to take home from that is that logical fallacies aren't just bad logic, but they're actually inhibiting your ability to convince someone, even if they don't understand that you're making a logical fallacy out of it. Right. And they're tripping survival tactics, us against them, like tribal warfare. So the way to, ways to uh, diffuse that would be to have them connect with you on a human level. Like you said, listening to their stories, sharing their stories, being vulnerable, admitting when you're wrong kind of things that feel like you're losing a war, losing a battle. So maybe the best, some of the best ways to win an argument is to be okay to lose. So I had an interesting kind of experience last night. Um, so I was watching, well, actually, okay, I'll, I'll rewind a bit and do one of my long rambling preambles <laughs> that I'm sure everyone loves. Um, Please, Greg, give us a long rambling preamble. Yeah, so there's this thing, <laughs> uh, and I'm going to invent a term. I'm going to call it a rhetoric bomb. Okay. Or can we can we think of something cooler? Like a rhetoric bomb's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'm liking the rhetoric bomb. Anyways, it's it's the kind of thing where you say something like ridiculously toxic that just shuts down the conversation. Oh, I'm good at that. For example, (laughs) you know, you're a baby killer. You know, you would say that to a pro-choice, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Or or something. Well, anyways, it was really peculiar on on Real Time with Bill Maher last night. There was the a female cast member who I couldn't quite pick her political leaning, but I would wager that she was a sensible Republican, not a Tea Party Republican. But there was just an amazing steamroller argument for uh, the benefits of socialized health care, a.k.a. the Affordable Health Plan, a.k.a. Obamacare, um, and how millions, millions of Americans are, are now going to have a health plan. She throws out this line, which was, and I mean, don't rip my rip my head off, but it was sort of a pseudo-feminism line. It was like the guy was advocating, you know, for government's intervention in people's lives, and she just threw down, well, isn't that obvious, like incredibly paternalistic of you? As if somehow 40 million people or whatever the number, whatever the number is, uh, getting access to healthcare is now sexist and the debate just done over. And he, uh, the guy that was advocating the position now, of course, I guess in full disclosure, I should be honest. It was actually Anthony Weiner. Um, that Anthony Weiner, dick pic tweet guy. Yes. But he was excessively, he was incredibly articulate and um, 
and he was he was actually making very good points. He was he was quite a good you know rising political star prior to sending pictures of his dick to everybody on Twitter. See, I'm getting that whole emotional response to this now, and so I'm like, oh, anything you said must have been stupid. So there you go, it works. <laughs> well, whatever, you know. I I agree no... with his position, but he's uh, anyway. Well, continue. He, you know, stupid people can make. Um, good points well or smart people can make very very bad decisions and i mean you know would i take anthony weiner's advice uh on marriage counseling (laughs) probably not (laughs) um but the point is he was spot on on health but then again here i am just you know digging my trenches and going yeah i like well obviously i liked what i heard because i'm in favor of Socialized medicine and healthcare. But in any event, what do you think of of that particular one instance where that bomb, well, obviously socialized medicine is not sexist. It's not paternalistic. And it just seemed like the word paternalistic just completely neutered the entire argument and all of a sudden made healthcare sound like some sort of... Patriarchal conspiracy. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and it definitely sounds like it's the sort of thing that's designed to to hit the emotion and say, oh, well, I, yeah, you're right. I don't like patriarchal decision-making. You know, I don't want the government to tell me what I can do with my body. But mm-hmm. it they, they aren't, so... Yeah, she hijacked well, it by triggering people's fears. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, yeah. and, and, and that's what the whole death panel, quote-unquote, thing is too, right? That keeps coming up. But... It's like, no, just because there is public medicine does not mean that a bunch of doctors are going to decide who lives and who dies. That's not how this works. Although it would be Mm. nice if people could decide. That is an entirely different topic. (laughs) Yeah, I've concluded that the best way for me to have debates would be for me to become a comedian. Because then you are diffusing people's fear and anger that leads them to black and white thinking and tribalism and us versus them Mm -hmm. and just making them laugh and see you as a person. Unfortunately, I'm not funny. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think that's why George Carlin was just so brilliant. Yeah. Is because I know people of all political and religious stripes who can enjoy George Carlin's comedy, even though he is very um, individualistic, very... Uh, very Democrat, very left-wing. Anti-religion. Very anti-religion. And yet they can laugh along. And it, I think that's, you're right, it, that being relatable and making people laugh while giving them something profound to think about is probably one of the best ways to do it. And that's probably, I mean, then again, um, I disagree with Bill Maher on certain things, but I really enjoy his show. And for the most part, I think he makes pretty salient points is an important part of the discussion. But if we had Gord Marr from Toronto on the CBC, I don't know, maybe that's Rick Mercer. Uh, <laughs> Rick Mercer is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I think Rick Mercer would kind of be in the same vein. Yeah, um, I mean, his, he does his, his he rants. He pulls off the angry rants, you know. Yeah, exactly. And, but yeah. he does them in a way that, yeah, the, it's more, it's political commentary, but at the same time, he's a comedian, so it, it works. Mm-hmm. And it's, beforehand you're listening to jokes and then afterwards you're listening to jokes and he's not telling you what to think he sort of leads you along so you he literally leads you along (laughs) down that alleyway (laughs) yeah but yeah no and um i I guess the other thing that we can kind of take away from this then is that 
the the little arguments over time that don't threaten. It's if you know someone who's a creationist, for example, it's better not to go up to them and be like, fossil, look at it. We're done. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that's not really going to change anything, and it's just going to offend them and get them emotionally um, challenged mm-hmm. and less likely to listen to you. Whereas having rational, safe discussions right. with that person where you're willing to um, listen to what they're saying and not just annihilate everything that comes out of their mouth, even though that at the time doesn't necessarily feel the nicest thing to do. It's actually the most effective way to change yeah. someone's mind. There seems to be evidence too that arguing with someone and using not your best arguments, but your weakest arguments that they can probably still refute because they're not really the reasons why you hold a specific position tends to help create dialogue and exchange of ideas Mm. better. So if you want to convert someone, quote unquote, to feminism, you shouldn't just start talking about rape culture. (laughs) Yeah, that's a tough pill to swallow. that, That is a really tough one to swallow. And once you understand what it's about, then it's right. uh, it's it's a very strong argument. But I it's battled with that one over like all summer. Not to say that I was a rape culture denialist, but it was a new idea, a very discomforting one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took me at least six or seven months or so uh, to finally settle the idea in. And then one day, I was kind of like. <gasps> Actually, I, I had to teach Rob about that as well. And it, for the same thing, it was um, one day he realized I was um, I was walking home from class at night by myself. And then just all of a sudden it clicked that the reason he's worried about me and, and obsessing about, oh, I, you know, I should have a can of bear spray, which is illegal, by the way, um, you know, and making sure I should all, do all these things just to be safe. And he was just like, this is ridiculous. And this people is, should just not rape people. And they was like, oh. Yeah. I had like almost the exact same. I mean, it was having a very big problem with this, mm-hmm. uh, this whole concept. And I'm like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, absolutely. And see how I introduced rape culture to my husband was he actually brought it up and he was complaining that he's a nice guy and he is a nice guy and he's a great guy. And he's, he's not a nice no, guy. He's, not, he's actually a nice guy. He, he's a really great guy. <laughs> and he was frustrated because when he takes the kids to the park, the other moms sort of shun him and he feels like they're judging him that he is potentially dangerous and it hurts. That's rape culture. That's, that's how it affects men is that, men are often viewed as potentially dangerous. So to women or even trans men at times, I suppose. Um, So that their ability to socialize with other people is affected and how people view them is affected. And that seems to be a little easier to talk about than the fact that we have a whole lot of people, um, women, feminine-bodied people and men who are susceptible to rape because we live in a, in a society that actually promotes rape culture. That's a lot scarier. That's a lot harder to take. We don't like that. We don't want to admit it exists, so we're more likely to deny it. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking to a guy and you're like, you know why that girl doesn't come up to you? Do you know why sometimes girls walk away from you when you go to say hi to them? It's because they're scared because they don't know 
they don't know you and they always have to be on the lookout. Mm. Absolutely. It's a weaker and argument. And probably the same reason why uh, white feminism focuses not on people of color and how it disproportionately affects them. Like yeah. in Canada, the the number of Aboriginal uh, girls and women, uh. like it, it's just, it's obscene and we don't talk about it. We just say, oh, these are the rape statistics for Canada. Right. And everyone assumes they apply equally and, and they, they don't. don't, not at all. No. And that so often gets forgotten because... Again, we're trying to create something that's safe and easy for us to talk about Mm -hmm. um, and also helps us feel persecuted. Right. Right? Because then we can relate. You're like, oh, this affects me in a bad way, so now it's important. Right. Yeah, I actually did that to a classmate. She's um, African-Canadian. Is that the term? Fair enough. I don't know. She's a woman of color, and she was telling me about her experiences of racism in small-town Alberta. And I thought I was being relatable and started sharing stories of how when I was in Mexico and people found out my mom cleaned houses, that then I was looked at, at, you know, looked down on from a class position. And then I realized all I had done was minimize her experience because I didn't want to admit that what was happening to her was so horrendous, freaking horrendous. Yeah. What I'm happened glad to I'm not the only monster at the table. <laughs> I'm going to glare at you for a while. Yeah. How's it feel? Don't do that, Sarah. Um, yeah. It, it took me a while to realize what I'd done to her. Yeah. Which was basically silence her and then try and take her pain and make it somehow relatable y- to you, mine. What about the men's her? I did. I totally did. And I realized it was because I was so uncomfortable with the fact that she was experiencing such horrible discrimination and I just didn't want to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And as a white person, I didn't have to. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's again, privilege, which is one of those. Yeah. It's, it's right up there with rape culture. Good luck talking. That is not a good way to introduce the topic to people. (laughs) (laughs) So everything about you is way better than other people have it. There you go. (laughs) So you can't complain as much. Don't well, tell that to people. They they don't react well. No. And, no. It, and it, I find very much it has to be something that kind of comes internally. Again, that slow process mm-hmm. of thinking about it, getting bits and pieces of, oh, okay, well, yeah, I guess. I don't know, speaking about relating to racism, I figured I'd throw in a, a Star Trek reference, but it's a really weak one. It's uh, the LeVar Burton, uh, where he was on Salon.com, where he explained how he doesn't, the things he has to do to go about not getting shot by the police. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's something uh, we will never understand. And so, yeah, we can't be like, oh, yeah, LeVar, I know what you mean. Man, I get stopped by the cops. They're such dicks. Ask me for my license and tap it on my window. Woof. Okay, Tell though, me about it. like when I lived you know. in India, we did get stopped by terrorists. And I was told that because I was white, I was probably you know, target for ransom. So I can totally relate to, no, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's such a different, yeah. There's like what we experience is sort of mild inconvenience Mm -hmm. and not Or even the stop and frisk in New York. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. The stop. Yeah. So I think they've, they've stopped like since, Oh goodness! I think it's nearly half a million stop and frisks. Yeah, 
and it's just it's a ridiculous percentage of um, Latinos and and black people that are the targets of this. Yeah, um, they for some reason white people just don't look suspicious, you know. But I mean that's the thing. You'll never. There was a good Daily Show piece on that too, where you know they. I think it was like Samantha B and Jason Jones or something. They had like a panel of white people going, yeah, stop and frisk. Yeah. Yeah. You should probably stop and frisk suspicious looking people. You know, they had just no clue. They were oblivious. Right. And then another panel of black people, you know, going and some Hispanics. Yeah. I don't think you really know what it's like to leave the house and, you know, yeah. Yeah. be frisked, you know, just for walking down a street. Yeah. And, and try and have an argument or discussion with someone about their racist behavior and it gets shut down because, you know, I don't want to think that I'm racist. I'm all for anti-racism. How dare you point out something that I did was racist? Cause and that's the funniest thing, you <laughs> you know, one of, the, one of the quirks you can say is like, I'm not a racist, but everything after the but is probably some of the most racist shit you could possibly think of. Mm-hmm. But basically their idea is proven wrong so they double down and they get yeah, exactly. even nuttier you yeah, know yeah. and or their ideas get even more, more extreme back more extreme yeah. yeah yeah absolutely and i mean right now they're using apparently someone dug out a quote uh the from the bible the man who doesn't want to work shall not eat or something like that um yeah. as a justification for getting social networks and social programs and whatnot but, because that's what jesus was all yeah, Jesus was totally about that. <laughs> in conclusion, I'm trying to learn how to make people feel safe and affirmed and respected so that I can better express how their ideas are pretty crazy. <laughs> well, and I think kind of, I, I think it's also important to acknowledge that we all believe things for no good reason. Yes. And that it's really uncomfortable when you kind of hit that wall yeah. um, in an argument with someone and go, crap, I actually have no justification for this and I'm now arguing based on emotion to be able to step back and go, okay, this is what's going on and either stop the conversation, come back to it so you can think about it logically um, or work with the person to create someplace where you do feel safe to explore something that is, you know, yeah you're not comfortable with so and when somebody challenges me in a very tactful way I find it much easier to review my position I need to work on learning to review my position when somebody challenges me in a very confrontational way I'm pretty much perfect (laughs) (laughs) okay so Greg doesn't need to learn anything but we do (laughs) no I mean um I yeah, no, I'm going to stick with perfect. No, it's, I'm, Patronizing. No, no, I'm just hamming it up for, for some giggles. But, I mean, it's always a constant work for me for, to not be a dick. There you go. And That's you're not a, the only one. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean... Uh, this is totally going to be a non-controversial statement, but don't be a dick. Yeah, I mean, like... But it's okay if you are, because... The, the only problem... No, I've uh, sort of come to accept that I mean and this goes back to an episode of a long long time ago probably when the don't be a dick thing was mm-hmm. was a little new communicating to people with weird beliefs yes whatnot. and I was like the only guy on the panel is like eh, tell them they're stupid <laughs> you know <laughs> I mean that was <laughs> that was me a couple years ago right yeah. and well 
less than two years ago. So, I mean, I've, it's a constant evolution and trying to, to temper myself and be more palatable and like put away the razor, you know, not get defensive and Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. You know, like, trust me, there are times where you need to be a dick. I'd agree. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and I will, and when one of those times comes up, I will be an unapologetic dick. Well, and for the same reasons we've just been talking about, it's a great way to motivate people who are already behind you. You know, to to get people Mm -hmm. involved in the cause. and and, Well, uh, just think, like, I couldn't imagine what it would be like if, you know, it takes people like the Christopher Hitchens and the Richard Dawkinses to push that discussion forward, Mm -hmm. to, to bring people like myself out of the closet. Like, I was completely on some level, you know, thinking that there was something very profoundly wrong with me, you know, because I could not ever have a supernatural. Like I just, no matter how hard I pretended, I could not make it stick. And there was always, and I mean, I (laughs) I ignored it and and those scars heal over time, right? But I kind of buried it for a while, but that latent belief was still there. But it took that, it took Richard Dawkins and it took Christopher Hitchens and their beautiful, eloquent words and reasoned arguments to make, to make me go, Hey, I'm not devil spawn. You know, I'm not a freak. And, you know, and so it really does get me, it gets me angry when people throw out the dick card. Like you wouldn't Mm -hmm. believe like when I was first kind of coming out, how many times I got that South Park episode, um, Richard Dawkins, um, uh, the 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 atheist alliance and the atheist yeah and whatever it is like too. to be honest with you that was a funny episode and it if you hilarious. can't laugh at yourself and if you can't let South Park poke at you you've got a problem you know then and you're that, a Scientologist yeah pretty much <laughs> you know what I mean they it's equal opportunity ripping on South Park and sometimes there's an episode that that's a you know indirectly it's about me and I'm like oh yeah yeah whatever. You know, but when people advance that as an argument, you know, and go, oh, Richard Dawkins is such a dick. I'm like, no, Richard Dawkins is explaining why certain things are just simply, you know, irrational. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I I do prefer Christopher Hitchens. I mean, his words cut like like a razor. I freaking love that guy. And I'm so sad he's gone. So, yeah, being a dick. Uh, I'll try not to be a dick. I'm always trying to not be a dick. (laughs) You try not to be a dick if you're trying to convince someone on the opposite side. But right. be the dick if you're trying to convince someone on the fence who's already on your already on your side. Right. Is that the lesson we can take away? Yeah. Like when Matt well, Delahunty's debating no. people, he's not really trying to change the mind of the person he's talking to on the atheist experience. He's doing the debate. Well, for if the you listeners. come in with intellectual honesty, like if you were to call that show and be like, Yeah, Matt, what about this? And go and you know, and right. I mean and that's not just you have to agree with Matt, but you have to come in with intellectual honesty. And I mean, mm-hmm. eventually, sometimes after about the 10, 12, 13 minute mark, you can tell, you know, either the guy's trolling or he's just not being honest with himself or whatever. Yeah. And then, and then Matt will go, all right, buddy, whatever. Mm-hmm. You're dumbass. You know, hang up on you, right? Yeah. And that's, that's the way it goes. Yeah. Yeah. And but, well, when I say be a dick, I mean, be angry, be passionate, use that emotion to your advantage. Right. 
as opposed to you don't want to bring high emotion into a discussion with someone who's on the opposing side to you if you're going to have any sort of discussion at all. Mm-hmm. And you also have to be as intellectually honest as you expect them to be. Right. You and know, like if you're like, we're going to talk about something that there is no way I'm ever changing my mind on, then you're kind of being the one who's the problem. <laughs> Unless yeah, being, you just uh, want to give a speech and they're okay with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're being an iron Romulan. <laughs> yes. It's yes, a pseudo are. Star Trek reference. Like, I don't know. I need Rob here. Can we get Rob back up here <laughs> and then we can cook up a Star Trek reference for this episode? Because I'm really floundering here. I wasn't allowed to watch Star Trek um, or Simpsons. You know, what? No, actually, we sort of had some similar experiences. Um, I went to a D&D Dungeons and Dragons book burning. Um, Why found, was this a thing? This floors me. People burned their Simpsons videos and paraphernalia and their non-Christian rock CDs. Simon and Garfunkel. (laughs) Ooh, yeah. Well, they are pretty, yeah. Wow. Did I ever get my ramble on tonight? It's okay. Well. Did you learn anything, Greg? Nope. uh, What do you mean you didn't learn learn anything? I learned I was pretty much perfect and uh, I'm really good at arguing. And, oh, wait. I already said what I learned. It was all that stuff where I got all emotional and stuff and touchy-feely and admitted that maybe I shouldn't be a dick. That, that's what I learned. I'm touched. Yeah. yeah. Uh, got me right here. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm cool like that, you know? I'm a sensitive guy. Yeah. Anyways, so um, to conclude tonight's episode, Rochelle Schindler. I mean, McCullough. McCullough. Whoops. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> Sarah and Gordon. Good night. And me, Greg Christensen. Good night. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, or if you have any questions or comments, send us an email at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you like what we're doing and want to show your support, please leave us a review on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook at slash podcast, or share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian Leon.